Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Larry Sand. Larry is a retired teacher and president of the California Teachers Empowerment Network. He's written about education issues for City Journal for many years, and his work also appears in USA Today, the Orange County Register, National Review, New York Post, Post, and a number of other uh, distinguished publications. Today, we're going to discuss his recent work on the state of education in America. So, Larry, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here, Brian. Thank you for having me. The National Assessment of Educational Progress is uh, a test. It's regularly administered to American students, um, measuring their knowledge in you know, key subjects, math, reading, history, science, and more. It's often referred to as the nation's report card, the NAEP as it's known. Uh, NAEP scores provide valuable insight into student performance over time. And, you know, you, you can get a, a snapshot of the health of our education system from it. The latest scores, which were based, I believe, on tests that were administered in 2022, uh, showed some alarming declines in a number of subjects. So I, I wonder if you could give us a quick overview of those latest NAEP scores and how they uh, looked, you know, depending on subject and grade level. Yeah, well, the, the, the scores that were released for eighth graders, in other words, 13-year-olds, and Peggy Carr, who's the commissioner of the National Center for Educational Statistics, and I quote her here, the mathematics decline for 13-year-olds was the single largest decline we've observed in the past half century. Uh, as far as specifics goes, uh, eighth grade reading, 31% scored proficient. Not even a third of our students are proficient in reading in eighth grade. And in math, it was in even more 26% or proficient. 26% of eighth grade students are proficient in math. So that's saying that, that that's a quite astonishing. So three quarters of the students are not reaching proficiency. Yeah, in, in math, three quarters are well, failing or, or not, not where they should be. And, and yeah, and, uh, and this is uh, tragic. For, for those students and frankly for the country. It's the next generation that's coming up. Now, the, just, the, these tests are administered very, very fairly and objectively. I used to be the testing coordinator at my middle school, and one day the NAEP people showed up. I mean, I knew they were coming up, they surprised me. And, and I was very impressed with how they handled it. So um, I, I have every confidence that these scores are accurate. Well, well you, yeah, and they're, they're, they're done nationwide and, uh, uh, now, you know, um, the the response to this from analysts and some commentators ha generally has been to point some of the blame or a lot of the blame to COVID for the the students' poor performances um, in this, this past round. Uh, you know, and, and certainly you would have to say COVID has played a role in that you had prolonged school closures. Uh, you had limited supplemental programs. You had, um, you know, remote curriculums that were kind of thrown together. Uh, people, you know, teachers really didn't know how to do this kind of remote learning, which has limits anyway. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's also true that the NAEP scores started dropping, I think, well before the pandemic. So I, 
I think um, even if this latest round of scores was particularly bad, uh, they haven't been looking good for a while. So I, I wonder what your view is about the factors that are contributing to poor academic performance um, and how far back that does go. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it, it goes back into the 70s, which is when the tests were first given. We can't obviously compare NAEP scores forever because they always started giving the NAEP in the 70s. But this is at the low point ever. And, and the scores are sinking before COVID. Clearly, COVID did damage. There is absolutely no doubt about that. But just to say, aha, this is due to COVID, the, the, the poor scores are due just to COVID is, is wrong and frankly dangerous. And so the question then becomes, as you ask, what other factors are involved? And let, let me just get two ahead of the way that people tend to talk about. And one is, um, you know, lack of money in school. Oh, we, if we just spent more money, the teachers unions love this. Oh yeah, if we just, you know, spent more money, things would get so much better. Um, and as I think I, I wrote, it was in 71, 72, we were spending $7,000 a student. In 2019-20, we were spending 17000 a student, and that is correcting for inflation. So we more than doubled, you know, it's 140% more in 2017, but this, in, in, excuse me, in uh, 2019 and 2020, and the scores are not uh, changing positively at all. And the other thing is that, oh, classes are too large. If we had to, you know, we need smaller classes. And yes, yeah, small classes work for some kids. They don't work for other kids. And um, in, in 1921, the, the average class size in the country was 33. And most recently, we like, the statistics have it at, at 16 to 1. So it's less than half what it used to be. And kids are not any better off for it. It's a red herring. And to me, what we have to look at is bailing teachers, plain and simple. Now, I'm not teacher bashing here. Most teachers are adequate. Some are wonderful. Most get the job done. But there's a whole cohort that doesn't get the job done. And unlike other professions, they don't get fired. You can't get rid of a bad teacher. Jack Welch, a GE CEO, famously said we need to get rid of the bottom 10% of Workers in any profession, the bottom 10% needs to go, all right? They need to do something else. And Eric Hanushek of Stanford uh, pointed out recently, if we could just get rid of the bottom 5 to 7% of teachers, we could have a world-class education system like Sweden, like Finland. But we don't do this. We fire almost no teachers. I mean, in California, I think about two teachers out of 300,000 uh, lose their jobs because they're incompetent because of, of seniority rules, or what they're really called as permanence rules, which are written into teacher union contracts, and you can't get rid of teachers. And as I say, if we could, the NAEP scores would maybe not go through the roof, but they would improve greatly. Uh, I wonder, you know, another aspect of this is, is the kind of curricula that are being used in classrooms. That's something we've written a lot about in City Journal. Um, you know, educators in some areas are, are pushing what we view as, as kind of radical ideological agendas on students, um, or, or certainly uh, also uh, flawed um, pedagogical approaches and things like math. So I wonder, you know, what, what's your view on the curricula side of things? 
you know, the, the history and physics scores, for example, in the NAEP also did very, very, um, you know, came in very poorly. Uh, so how much of this is, is, a, is a question, what is being taught? Well, uh, clearly that does have an effect because the more time teachers spend on DEI, BLM, CRT, so radical ideas that are involved, you know, inculcated in education now. It's the less time they have to spend on the ABCs and the one, two, threes. And this is where education should be teaching the basics and, you know, certainly in elementary school, not talking about oppressors and you know, the oppressed and, and, you know, the racist country that America is. Of course, every second you spend on that nonsense, not only are you creating more radical students, you're depriving them of a, a, an actual education. Um, you know, an, another recent article you did for us looked at a very disturbing trend in the schools, which was the sexual abuse of students. Uh, reports of sexual misconduct in schools have proliferated in recent years. Surveys of students in grades 8 through 11 indicate that up to one out of 10 have been victimized in some ways uh, from sexual abuse, both physical and verbal, uh, by school personnel. Uh, you know, too often offending teachers don't get penalized for the reasons you were just suggesting, perhaps. Instead, they're allowed to uh, seek employment at other schools where they're probably likely to continue their, their uh, sexual predation. So, you know, uh, what is your sense on how uh, these kind of offending teachers are, are dealt with within the system? Uh, you know, why are they uh, permitted to remain in proximity to children? And you know, what should be done with them? Well, uh, clearly, yeah, that 10% number is just shocking. I, I, when I read that, I almost fell out of my chair, and then I did a lot of research on the subject, and it's really in line with other studies uh, that were done over the years, so it's, I have no reason to believe it's not true. And it's basically the, the reason you can't get rid of teachers, once again, it's collective bargaining agreements between teachers' unions and school districts. And uh, they often allow for scrubbing of personnel files. Um, as state legislators are notoriously lax against fighting the teachers' unions because so many of them are there because of the political spending of the teachers' unions. Um, we need to stand up to these unions. We need more legislators. And more than anything, we need parents to get involved in schools. Now, I, I, I know that sounds almost like a silly statement, but when I was a kid in the 50s, my mother could send me off to school and be reasonably assured I was going to get a good education. She didn't have to bother too much, you know, the teachers. She'd go to open school night, that sort of thing. Now, parents can make no such assumption. Whether it be a radical agenda or sexual abuse, parents must be all over their kids every day, questioning them. It, better yet, send them to a private school or homeschool. Um, and, I mean, you know, it's when I publicly speak on this, I, I always talk about it. Parents, you know, must deprogram their kids and must get involved. And um, <clears throat> excuse me. And to, to that end, this is indeed happening now. Um, there's a group called Parents Defending Education, which is nationwide, and even 
a, a bigger splash is being made by a group called Moms for Liberty, who now has 120,000 members, 285 chapters in 44 states. And they, these are not shy ladies. God bless them. I mean, they're, they're and that they're annoying all the right people. I mean, they, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center called them an extremist group, and the nation describes them as hateful fascist bigots. Even the New Republic, which I used to think was saying, famous group has created nightmares for schools across the country. Why? Because they care about their kids. And their teachers may care about the kids, but they may not. So um, anyway, parents need to get involved. And as I say, thankfully, this is going on, but we need even bigger participation. Uh, you know, there there has been here in New York, where where I am, um, but in other states as well, um, and really a, a marked decline in the number of students enrolling in public schools. So, this probably was reaction to extended lockdowns in states that did that. Um, you know, parents just finding alternatives. Uh, I wonder, in your view, if if COVID really the, the, the reaction to COVID in the part of many school districts was a kind of wake-up call for parents to really get a, a glimpse inside of what was going on in the classroom um, and that, you know, the, the emergence of these groups you just discussed is is another aspect of that, that the parents are starting to get uh, mobilized. Yeah, I, I absolutely, Brian. The um, parents were awakened brutally, sharply, <laughs> Uh, violently by COVID. First of all, the schools closed, which was a useless exercise, and primarily, as many people now realize, because of the teacher unions, specifically Randy Weingarten, who uh, seemed to have a hotline to the CDC. And um, also, it showed what teachers were teaching, because most of the teaching went online. So parents saw what their kids were learning and weren't learning, and many were outraged. And just between the schools closing down and what they saw online caused many parents to just to wake up. And uh, they didn't like what they, what they saw and, and have responded accordingly. Well, that's a sign of hope, uh, I think, for the future. Um, you know, these NAEP scores should f- provide further uh, evidence that, that more shaking up is necessary. And you are starting to see uh, some real alternatives in terms of things like charter schools, uh, various uh, uh, tax incentive programs, um, gr- growing school choice really across the country in many states, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good, good point. I, I don't have the latest tally. And even if I did, if I prepared for that, it would probably change by the time this podcast is over because it's just growing in leaps and bounds. Ohio just flipped the other day. And I think seven, eight, maybe nine states have gone universal choice in the last year and a half or so. I'm not exactly, I'm, I'm estimating here. But yeah, all of a sudden, school choice is floating, and it, it's because, once again, because of what the teachers are, you know, too many teachers are involved in radical teaching and because of the COVID shutdowns. And, and, and this is a very healthy sign, and it's especially important because the kids who need this most were kids and are city kids. Their parents are in, in increasing numbers uh, for uh, money going to, you know, putting parents in charge of, of the spending of their education dollars. 
Well, it's a, it is a uh, it is a fertile time, I think, for for these kind of innovations, and I think we'll be seeing more of them going forward. Larry, thanks very much. As always, uh, uh, good good to talk with you. Um, don't forget to check out Larry Sands' work on the City Journal website. As I mentioned earlier, he's been writing on education issues in California uh, and nationally for City Journal for a while now. That's uh, www.city-journal.org. We'll link to Larry Sands' author page there in the description, and you can find him on Twitter at LDSand, at LDSand. You can also find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at CityJournal underscore MI. As always, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And Larry Sand, uh, great to talk with you. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.